That was more than a minute. But we'll let it slide because we're that kind of people, aren't what, we, Scotty? What kind of people are we? We're the kind of people that let some things slide. <laughs> but when it comes to meat sliding down your gullet, we don't let that slide because this is Vegan Radio, mofo. That's right. <laughs> is that like our new full name? Vegan Radio Mofo. Not bad. Short for Mofo Us. Yep. Mofo everybody. Mofo is kind of like tofu. Uh-huh. Well, then don't put it on your license plate because you might be disbanded. <laughs> Disparaged. Disparaged, yeah. I'm using I'm using fake words today. It's my Let's new do thing. it. Use all the wrong words. We're back with our special uh, in-studio guest. Madida. Yo. <laughs> Back by popular demand, people uh, found that her soothing voice uh, helped to lull them into a, a kind of a, a state of openness and receptivity. So. You really think that? Um, She's the mofo of the month. Mofo vegan of the yes. month. <laughs> Thanks, man. Do I, do I get a certificate for that? Um, no. Oh, I wanted something to put on I'm the trying wall. to conserve paper. Oh, yeah. Well, a digital one, then. We'll, we'll put a little uh, shout-out to you on Facebook or something. <laughs> so today we have uh, Eric Prescott from Boston. He has a website called Animal Friendly Life. He's an abolitionist, which means that he believes that the way to be a good animal rights activist is to strictly promote veganism, not to mess around with trying to get laws changed to better the conditions of animals so the animal industry can then say, look, these animals have a cage that is four inches bigger. Right. Now you don't have to feel guilty about eating them. Yep. So... You know my feelings on this whole abolition thing. I do. Yeah. I've forgotten. It is a lofty goal, and it is it should be the goal. Uh, but I uh, I fear it is a very, very daunting goal. <laughs> Indeed. That's exactly what I was trying to explain to Goodwin earlier. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he thought I was against abolition. <laughs> I just said you were going to start trouble with our guest. I didn't say... Uh-oh. No, I think I'm we're all going to be starting trouble with our guest, it sounds like. I, really? I do want to hear what he has to say. That's, I'm very excited about this. I'm going to say, go, Eric, go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when it comes to, like, idealism, sometimes you want to be, like, absolutely at the, you know, apex of what that is. Uh, and, uh, you know, being an abolitionist is certainly the most ideal kind of activist you well, can be. I know that be. as an activist, I am an abolitionist. I, I put all my energy into converting people to veganism mm -hmm. i don't put any energy into getting laws passed other than you know when they were banning greyhound racing in north and uh, massachusetts i voted to ban it mm -hmm. yeah i mean that kind I of thing put, certainly. i put my energy of voting mm -hmm. into voting and i uh and we we talked about it on this radio show i mean we so we do we do um have all different views on this radio show, so <clears throat> I, you know, we don't ban welfareists from being on vegan radio. So does that mean we're not true abolitionists? I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to things like greyhound racing, um, 
and things like that they're they're small enough that that and i think that people can vote on that kind of stuff it makes it a lot easier i i don't know i just i know there's like this idea that someday it'll be all illegal he won't be able to have a cow <laughs> uh what will bart simpson do don't have a cow dad um but uh you know i think uh if if there is such a day that day is many 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 decades away well we need cows because they're um their poo is the uh, place where mushrooms grow. Oh, okay then. <laughs> so without so. cows, but but they should be free roaming, independent beings. Yeah. Grandpa, Matlock's not real. Neither are my teeth, but I can still eat corn on the cob if someone cuts it off and smushes it into a fine paste. Now that's good eating. Well, the the thing that bothers me is <laughs> you know you have Prop Two in California now Massachusetts it was a House Bill whatever the number is to ban the gestation crates and battery cages and that's great but those animals are still going to die in the end. There's yeah. no way around it. They're going to die, and of course they're going to die horribly. And they're going to be slaves, and they are going to be commodified, and they are going to die violently. Right. Exactly. And I wouldn't say better that they had never been born, but uh, better that no more are born for that purpose. I know. I was thinking about, I was driving by a a field of cows the other day, and um, Mm. (laughs) I was thinking about how beautiful they are. And Uh. if it weren't, I know this is horrible, Uh. but if it weren't for the dairy industry, we wouldn't have them to look at. I know that's like, that's a very weird thought to have. I mean, they exist because of us. Actually, the, um, the cows... The dairy industry has been able to factory farm cows. It's the uh, the meat cows that are the more the ones that you see outside more often. I mean, around here, there's local smaller farms that have dairy cows that you can see. So those are meat cows, really? Well, no, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you live in a place like California, where they have the feedlots, where the yeah. you know the cows that are raised in the Midwest for meat, they're uh, you know, they're raised on public lands with our taxpayer dollars. They roam around and kind of flatten out all the environment and all the all the other animals are, you know, the predatory animals are killed so that these cows can be safe from them so that they can be saved for their biggest predator. And then uh, when they're getting ready to be made into meat they get sent to these feedlots which are giant confined operations where they're fattened up with grains and when they're there you know there's thousands and thousands i I drove past one in california and stopped and uh got out of my car and all the cows came up to the fence and were like looking at me and i was just like oh my god uh but it was just you know for as far as you could see there is like sections of fence with hundreds and hundreds of cows, you know, confined together in this, these areas. There was no grass or anything. It was all mud and, uh, you know, it was intense. Intense, intensely emotional. And I said, cows, I can't save you, but I'm going to work so that someday your kind can be safe, saved or extinct or something better than this. That was my vow to the cow. Here, here. Aw, that's <laughs> sweet. Hey. What? How about that new PETA billboard? Oh, well, my God. It's really making me angry. It's, <laughs> gee, it's I don't know if I believe here. you. Uh, what is it? 
Well, show Scott that picture. Okay, well, I'll tell you about it. In Florida, there's a PETA billboard. And in big letters, it says, Save the whales, lose the blubber, go vegetarian. And on the far right-hand side there, it's all, it's all um, graphics. It's not photographs. There is what looks to be um, an obese woman in a bikini. Mm. Um, a scene from behind. Um, so this is just their their newest... I don't know. Now they're sizest, you know, not just sexist, but sizest. Um, and I don't like it because, um, you know, they're, I don't, I don't know. They're, they're implying that, um, you know, if you go vegetarian, you'll automatically lose the pounds. So then people are going to try it and they're going to become discouraged. Um, I know personally, I struggled after becoming vegan, even many, many years, I struggled with my weight, um, because I didn't know how to eat. I didn't educate myself on how to eat properly, um, and I didn't exercise. I still don't exercise as much as I'd like to, um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, <laughs> they they always they never know where to draw the line, and it, they. I, I think they do anything just to get in the news. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and of course they're making. I feel like they're making the rest of us look bad. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, that's the kind of the thing is, I suppose, to a certain extent, maybe they expect uh, young vegetarians and vegans to be like, hurrah, PETA. Yeah, put it, put up, put it, them to the, you know, put it out there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this, it, it's really definitely, it's like very transparent attention grabbing and, you know, it doesn't really serve, I don't think, the purpose it's. And it kind of ties into to. our, what, are, what we'll be talking about with our guest about abolitionism. I mean, this, I mean, Arguably, this could be some kind of message to get people to go vegan. You know, it's not trying to get a law passed or something. But it seems like a tremendous waste of the resources that, you know, the animal rights movement. We don't have a lot of, you know, we're not huge. We don't have a lot of money. PETA gets a good chunk of all the money that's donated to animal rights, probably by a lot of people that aren't vegan or even vegetarian. And uh, what are they doing with it? They're alienating us from uh, women's rights move the women's rights movement. They're alienating us from overweight people now. Um, and you know, veganism can be the healthiest diet on the planet, but it's not. Not just being vegan doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and skinny. Exactly, because I know I remember. Um my my grandmother who's no longer on this earth um in this lifetime she used to go oh go on you can cheat it (laughs) wasn't a weight loss diet it was a lifestyle change and some people just think that you can you know go ahead and eat that piece of lard laden birthday cake you know that's the other thing (laughs) i think i think that the the health argument for veganism is very strong if but um, I don't think that people will stick to veganism just for their health, um, unless you know they've had a near-death experience. You know that that can wake up people. But for most people, you know, if they just go vegan to lose weight, and they don't get the ethical part of it, um, they're they're likely to backslide. And then the backsliders, I think, are are the worst. Uh, you know, they're kind of like an advertisement against veganism because they're always the people that go out and say, well, I used to be vegan, but uh, 
I didn't feel like I had enough energy because I was only eating processed tofu and <laughs> potato chips. And uh, yeah, veganism doesn't work. I mean, you you can have. Do you like this voice, <laughs> Meredith? Do you like it? That's, no, that's Derek, your apocrypha voice. Don't. Yeah, I think you should be this quiet is, now. What? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, you can have you know skinny people who are totally unhealthy and curvy people who are very healthy. So. Are you a healthy, curvy person? Yes, I am, and I'm proud of it. Well, we're we're proud of your curves. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <coughs> Moving on. What Moving else on. you got for news for us, Scotty? Uh, well, did you know uh, that uh, a high-fat diet might make you stupid and lazy? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't say. <laughs> it's true. Should uh, I cut back on my avocados? This is a foxnews.com headline, but uh, here's the story. By now, we've all heard that high-fat diets are bad for our health in the long run. But what about the short term? Well, a new study on rats... Sorry. Uh, Finds that 10 days of eating a high-fat diet caused short-term memory loss and made exercise difficult. Uh, basically, they um, fed the rats a high-fat diet, and uh, they tested them before and after with this maze problem and some other problems, in, which involve uh, food rewards. Uh, and the rats were less able, those who had ate a uh, higher-fat diet, were less able to uh, complete the task well. And uh, there's some speculation that you know perhaps they were just weren't hungry so they weren't as motivated but uh they i guess they controlled for that and so somehow it basically shows and uh is it just rodents no indeed uh this has also been shown to be the case in humans in other tests so it looks like uh you get a high fat hangover that's the way they're describing it uh. meanwhile uh school lunches are going vegetarian more meatless options are on the menu. And this is from U.S. News and World Report. Uh, but check out this story. <laughs> At Rockdale County Public Schools just outside Atlanta, you won't find a whole lot of kids satisfying their midday hunger with potato chips, hamburgers, or other high-calorie foods in the cafeteria. Instead, they enjoy pizza with whole-grain crust and low-fat cheese, turkey corn dogs with whole-grain batter. Turkey is not a health food. Or pimento cheese salads. Ooh, Ooh mucus. And mm. nothing is Us. fried. Yummy. No, the cheese is definitely, you know, it's, it's, a, it's got the casein in it and stuff. Uh, so they get you. Uh, the food service staff for the 15,000-student school district does most of the baking from scratch, Ooh. incorporating whole wheat flour into the rolls, corn dogs, and hamburger buns. We don't make a big deal about it, said the district's food service director. We sneak it in, and the kids go for it. It's all part of an ongoing effort by school nutrition professionals to educate children about making good food choices, including an emphasis on introducing children to vegetarianism. Ooh. How about that? Cheese is not vegetarian. With cheese. Yeah, well, vegetarian with cheese. Uh, <laughs> a new nationwide survey by School Nutrition Association says almost two out of three U.S. schools now offer vegetarian fare for lunch on a regular basis. Mostly pizza. Uh, that's a 40% increase since 2003, the first year veggie meals were tallied by the nonprofit group. And it's not just the standard salad bar, grilled cheese, succotash, I'll look that up, or tofu-based products that are getting all the action. Meatless offerings for students these days are moving towards dishes that would appeal to non-vegetarians because of taste alone. Ooh. Yeah, imagine. Can you like imagine? What? Pizza? I guess that basically <laughs> means non-vegetarians, those who have been conditioned to enjoy the taste that they're used to. Um says SNA, such as Mexican themed vegetable burritos. 
<laughs> I guess they come with a like a hat, a sombrero on them. Lots of pus. Vegetable topped pizza, vegetable cacciatore, or lentil sauce with pasta. Is now we're talking. Cacciatore, a cream dish. Uh, cacciatore. Um, yeah, it's basically a, well, it can be. But uh, the way I, uh, I used to make like uh, the uh, chicken variety when I was doing that uh, was just basically a bunch of stuff with a bunch of tomato sauce. Uh. Who knows? There may be different ways. So at Rockdale Schools, menu choices include stir-fry over rice, pasta, and rice dishes, and egg salad or pimento cheese sandwiches. Uh, brown rice would be nice, but we'll see. Uh, all the largest more. gains in stool nutrition programs, healthful options come from added vegetarian items. Schools are making efforts to better serve the nutritional needs of their students across the smorgasbord. The report, which surveyed about 1,200 school nutrition directors, shows a nearly 12% increase in low-fat foods since 2007. And items baked from scratch are also up with schools using fresh fruits for low-calorie treats like peach cobbler or blueberry muffins or black bean brown re- uh, brownie recipes. Did you know you could make brownies with black beans? Oh, I would love that. A vegan version, of course. Yep. So there you go. It's uh, it's sort of taking hold little by little. It's, an, it's a you know minor thing. But gosh, they really do like to emphasize the cheese as if things won't have any flavor without it. I know. That really annoys me. Um, I remember reading something similar earlier this week about... Um, now, I wish I had the article in front of me um, about, you know, people eliminating processed lunch meats from their diet and replacing them with healthy options like turkey breast, blah, 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 tuna fish. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. No, Medita says no. I say no to the tuna. Meanwhile in California, uh, citation of the week goes to a California beef processor that voluntarily recalled tons of hamburger meat due to salmonella fears last week. Ha ha. Yep. They were slapped with an animal handling, handling citation last year in a government review of meatpacking plants, apparently. So at least 28 people in three Western states uh, reported salmonella-related illnesses since last Thursday, which I guess is about actually by now two weeks ago, when Fresno-based Beef Packers, Inc. recalled nearly 826,000 pounds of ground beef. It's a lot of cows. It is. My God. Uh, Last year, in the wake of the biggest beef recall in history, linked to a Southern California slaughterhouse, inspectors visited the Fresno facility and 17 other plants that sold meat to the National School Lunch Program. Inspection records show uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture auditors found workers in Fresno were using electric prods to coax skittish skittish cattle through a narrow chute leading into the slaughterhouse. Because I guess they wouldn't go otherwise. When three cows refused to budge, they were stunned and rendered unconscious so that they could be pulled through the restrainer to be shackled, hung, and bled, the records state. The USDA considers electric prods a humane tool when they are used properly on walking animals. If you could only hear me shaking my head. Maybe we could go around and uh, (laughs) we could use electric prods on people we don't like. And we could say, oh, it's humane. But fortunately (laughs) for us... Uh, there are selfish reasons to think about these things. For example, dragging unconscious cattle could increase the risk for E. coli and salmonella contamination because cow hides can pick up bacteria from feces that sometimes collect in or around the chute. Because cows, when they realize what's about to happen to them, tend to lose it. All kinds of feces and urine get into these chutes because they typically aren't cleaned out during the day because too many animals need to get in. Do you think they call it a poop chute? Ram it, ram it, ram it, ram it up your poop chute. <laughs> Uh, said Lester Friedlander, a former USDA veterinary inspector. Uh, the plant, 
plant's parent company, Cargill Meat Solutions, <laughs> solving problems through meat, said the animals balked because there were too many auditors present that day. Oh, it was the auditor's fault. It's kind of <laughs> like, like in physics when you try to see if it's a wave or a particle. It's, it says, oh, there's somebody looking at me. Exactly. <laughs> it was like Schrodinger's cow. The company appealed the alleged violation. The USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service later rescinded the citation and instead sent beef packers a letter of concern. I'm going to send the beef packers packing. We're concerned. Uh, you know, I hope they also su- suggested they get back to them and help them. Uh, so. so that's pretty standard industry practice, uh, as well documented by many undercover investigations. And if you are interested in reading just how horrible uh, these slaughterhouses are in so many ways, from human rights violations to inhumane practices, of course, killing is not humane. It can't be humane to kill somebody that doesn't want to die. And cows are somebody. Each cow, an individual, goes to its death. Uh, what do you say, Scotty? It's about time to get our guest on the line yeah did you have any more breaking news that must be heard today oh uh i doubt it oh well one one more thing there's a cj day a cjd story um you know mad cow kreutzfeld jacobson disease yep on examiner.com uh i'll just give you the basics um why are untested donated blood products and or cattle being exported that's untested In the USA, the FDA recently noted there are numerous recent blood recalls of donated blood headed for humans due to the risk of mad cow disease. So check out this story on examiner.com from Ann Hart from the Sacramento Nutrition Examiner. I just donated blood last week. So if if you're in need of a transfusion, you should request my blood. Yes. It's pretty safe. Yes, try to avoid contaminated cow blood if that's uh, given an option for you. <laughs> they they have a pretty, you know, they have a lot of questions related to uh, CJD on the um, the uh, questionnaire you have to fill out before you give blood. And uh, with without much explanation, you know, I don't I don't know if people who are giving blood ever have an epiphany like well, it seems like they're really worried about this CJD thing. But uh but they are and with with good reason because um very very small like a, a very tiny 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 percentage of the um cows in the US are ever tested for mad cow disease it's kind of like a don't ask don't tell don't look don't find type of thing and uh so it's likely that many of us are harboring prions that could go wonkers in our brains start eating holes and uh, a lot of people die from it that are misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's and other things. It's crazy. Crazy scene. Yeah, it's true. And as it turns out, like people who eat uh, a lower meat diet are at lower risk for Alzheimer's uh, in recent studies as well. So it looks like there's, um, you know, potential for connections between uh, mad cow and Alzheimer's. Connections that are not being investigated. Yeah. I mean, how is it that eating publicly meat and stuff like that? could give you alzheimer's i mean if it didn't have something something bad in it or you know created a reaction yeah odd questions odd questions we need to (laughs) we need to have like a vegan research group 
<laughs> They're out there. Hi, this is Emily Deschanel from Bones, and you are listening to Vegan Radio on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, and podcasting at veganradio.com. Being compassionate means being vegan. Then we'll be back with Eric Prescott from Boston, a vegan activist, abolitionist, and all-around swell guy. <laughs> <laughs> is vegan radio all right all that in a cello too wxojlp northampton uh veganradio.com that was tina collins with ramble and rome from her album back to the country which is spelled a little differently than you might imagine um let's see so eric prescott are you there i am excellent things are working this week wow we have to praise the vegan goddess. Yeah, maybe somebody fix something that will always work from now on. <laughs> um, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a pretty hectic day. How are you doing? Good. We are, uh, we're excited to talk to you. We've been looking at your website and some of the projects you've been involved in recently. 
Um, I guess the the most recent post is this interesting uh, kiosk called Ovid, O-V-E-D. Right, Outdoor Video Educational Display. Yeah, so you want to tell our listeners what that's about? Sure. Well, I I guess I'll give it a little bit of setup here. Um, The site you're talking about, animalfriendlylife.com, I actually didn't know that that was up again. I think I did something at Blogger that... uh, that uh, rewrote the index page because I had uh, sort of taken the homepage offline while I work on other projects, but I'm glad you saw that there. The OVED was uh, a project of the Boston Vegan Association, a group that I founded a couple years ago when I moved to Boston from Los Angeles. And it's basically a way to bring attention to what we're doing out there on the sidewalk so that people come to us when we're doing our advocacy out on the streets of Boston, the idea being that uh, people come to us, they're more inclined to actually want to talk to us and have a conversation rather than if we're you know, going out there and trying to accost them or use, using a bullhorn or anything like that. And so um, you know, we constructed the OVED and put together some footage from various sources that we were able to acquire, which we're still, it's always a work in progress, but it's, uh, I think it's about 12 and a half minutes long and it's on a loop. And... People see that, and you know, sometimes people haven't seen any of this stuff before, and it really opens up a lot of conversation. So, where exactly is it? The, where is it? Yeah, or does it move around? Oh, the Ovid itself. Well, it's you know, we keep it in storage, and then when we uh, are ready to do our tabling, we you know, we haul it out along with the table and our tablecloth and a poster we use as well. Oh, and some pamphlets, including our own pamphlet. Yes. So it looks pretty sturdy. I mean, is it uh, is it meant to be bomb-proof? Or? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it looks going to be deceiving. It's actually one paperclip away from falling apart, it seems, sometimes. I'm, uh, I'm definitely not an uh, uh, experienced construction worker. I, I put that thing together myself along with uh, another member who, uh, you know, was uh, just as experienced, I think, as I am at this sort of thing. And we went off of a design that was on the web, but we, you know, I wanted a bigger screen. We have a 20-inch screen, and that required, you know, a bigger base, and bigger base means more wood, it means more rigidity, you know, that sort of thing, but, uh, you know, it hopefully will last a long time. <laughs> and what have reactions been to people who have seen it uh, just sort of out of the blue? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's been only since the summer that we've had a chance to use it, and unfortunately, it's pretty bright out, so we we uh, get some people look at it, and, and they're kind of not sure what they're watching at first. And as soon as they find out, they they don't necessarily want to watch. But it definitely gets them to stop and look, and that's the key thing. And uh, you know, I've just adjusted some settings to make the TV a little more visible in daylight. We're getting a clearer screen, and hopefully soon we'll be seeing just how much more uh, reaction we get during the daytime uh, in the heat of the summer in the middle of the day. But the key again is that uh, we get them, we get them up and in our space and asking us questions. And we've had some really good conversations with people. Uh, they really understand the uh, reasons for being, anim- you know, for being vegan and for, for uh, respecting animal rights when you present them in a way that's logical and articulate and clear. And when you bring it to them from the point of view that they agree that it's wrong to harm animals unnecessarily, they really do listen to you because you re- they realize you're talking about something they already agree with. You know, and when you take it from there, a lot of people make connections that they haven't made before, and they don't necessarily, on the spot, have this epiphany where they say, you're right, I'm going to be vegan starting right now. Point me to the nearest vegan restaurant. <laughs> but they, um, they say, you know, I never really heard it like that before. That makes a lot of sense. 
things like that that really you really know people are listening to you at that point instead of the usual thing where before I started tabling in this way and before I started you know conducting my uh, advocacy as an abolitionist animal rights advocate people would tune me out and you know we were using bad slogans and saying a lot of things that people just you know chose not to hear we weren't having real genuine dialogues so having a tool like a poster or the Oved is really really great for engaging in meaningful dialogue that can actually lead to people rethinking their position and uh, what has the emphasis been in the stuff you've been presenting on there is it mostly factory farm footage and such no, no, actually, we, uh, that's a good question, actually. I think it's really important that uh, what we do show, if we show any kind of quote-unquote gore at all, is industry standard stuff. So, and not only that, but stuff that is just basic uh, to using animals. It's not necessarily something that uh, is a welfare-oriented issue. So, for instance, we uh, have footage from auctions. We have footage from, you know, chick hatcheries and so forth. Things that are just a natural part of the process, you know, natural being a weird word, but, uh, you know, just a part of the process of using animals and that can't be gotten around by scaling down to family farms necessarily, you know, quote-unquote small family farm. Because the problem, of course, is that it harms animals to use them regardless of whether they're on on a idyllic pastoral family farm or a factory farm, as they're called. Yeah, and certainly there's uh, reverberations from that that cause long-term harm. So, uh, yeah, I was th- I was just thinking as you were talking about the sta- the standard industry practices, I saw this uh, thing called the history of the orgasm, and uh, they had this wonderful footage of a guy who was helping a pig to be inseminated, and he had to climb on top of her and uh, stimulate her nipples to get her to take the uh, sperm up better. Jeez. I don't know, but uh, you might want to include that. <laughs> Uh, well, that's a possibility now that I know where to find it. I mean, it's terrible. It's it's funny. I've I've engaged recently with dialogue, in dialogue. I don't know how two two way it was. It seemed like it was kind of one way, unfortunately. But uh, you know, a lot of rural types who say, "Well, have you ever been on a farm? You have no idea what it's like." And they really object to the terms like rape and torture that I don't really use a whole lot myself. But you know, when you characterize these sorts of activities with humans in this position. No one hesitates to call it those things. People object to using those terms when we apply them to animals because of their speciesism. Right, precisely. Right. Um, so you also have a, a documentary that you're working on? That's true. I'm working on a series of documentaries. They're, they're short profiles of about four to five minutes in length, uh, highlighting vegans from all over North America. It's been a couple months earlier this year traveling the country with my crew, and we got a, a ton of interviews. You know, I, I guess... Uh, not just the 64 different interviews we conducted with, with individuals and families, but also, uh, you know, proprietors of vegan shops like Sticky Fingers and D.C. and uh, restaurants and retail stores. And I'm looking forward to getting all that, that footage. Uh, you know, we're going to go through, I'm going to go through there, and hopefully we're going to have, uh, uh, you know, at least half of them up online within the next year. Uh, right now I'm a little tied up working on uh, and yet another project. <laughs> so I'm hoping to get back to it again soon in a, in a couple months at the, at the most. So are you going to make a feature-length film, or is this just going to be individual uh, documents that you can look at? Well, as of now, the key thing is to get them up at vegandocumentary.com, and uh, that's fed through the Vegan Documentary YouTube channel. And the idea is to have people share these with their friends and their family and to just get them as widely disseminated as possible with as low a barrier to entry as possible, no movie tickets, no 
going to the theater and parking and, you know, no persuading someone that uh, it's worth $10 to watch a movie about vegans and veganism. I think that's <laughs> actually not a very, you know, not a very big market to try and convince a uh, distributor to uh, to take on, you know? Right. Um, however, if in the course of the next year, as I'm working on these documentaries, I do see uh, a story for a feature, then, you know, obviously I'm open to that. But uh, I just want to uh, do the best, make the best use of the material that I have, so that uh, not just as a filmmaker, but as, a, but as an advocate, that I can get something out there that will help people not only see vegans as people that could be them if they just, you know, weren't so resistant to the idea of respecting animals' rights, but also to even understand what animal rights is about. You know, for those people out there that I interviewed that that tie their veganism to an understanding of animal rights that, that makes sense, I want to I help them articulate that by putting that out in their profiles so that people start seeing how reasonable the position is. You know, they see it coming out of the mouth of a perfectly ordinary, decent human being, and they might stop for a second and think, oh, okay, you know, these aren't, you know, just the PETA people, you know, I mean, they're everyday ordinary vegans who respect that animals have an interest in not being harmed. Right. I mean, yeah, you have to counter the, the media image of, uh, of us all as kooks, of course. Yeah, you know, and uh, not to mention the kooks that uh, are within the industry or within the uh, quote unquote movement that make us look like that. And you know, I mean, uh, there's no denying that there are people who uh, say they favor animal rights and then they go out and do things that make us look really, really bad. They, uh, you know, they grab for publicity that really furthers their own interests more than it furthers the interests of animals. Yeah, I wonder if that isn't the case in all forms of activism. Well, well, certainly something to be aware of. I mean, we, we, we don't, I mean, it's helpful if we're focused on, is this something that will help animals or is this something that's going to help us? I mean, I think it's, if we're going to say we're animal advocates, we should be mindful of that question. Well, that's, uh, that's a good uh, segue to talking about abolitionism. And um, we, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the show. Um, but do you want to tell us about... Um, you know, abolitionism kind of seems like a kind of a new, a new, th- a new thing in the animal rights movement, or at least it's it's been named recently. Um, it's I guess I guess people have probably held that theory for a while. But um, do you want to talk about your kind of journey as a vegan activist and and the connection to abolitionism? Sure, I think that's pretty important. I had a lot of conversations this summer uh, with other advocates or would-be advocates, people who are interested in doing advocacy who are trying to figure this out, what they ought to be doing. And certainly when I started out, I just did whatever. I didn't have any theoretical underpinning for my beliefs. I just knew I didn't want to participate in harming animals, and I wanted to stop it from happening, you know, at the hands of others. And so I just grasped at whatever was presented to me by the status quo, and that was fortunately challenged for me by Gary Francione, who was on the Vegan Freak podcast uh, that Bob and Jenna Torres started back in, uh, I guess, was it 2006? Yeah, and he probably and, physically grabbed you, too. Yeah, he <laughs> reached right through the speakers and grabbed my, my collar. Yeah, no, he certainly, uh, I mean, the great thing about listening to Gary is that he, he really just, um, he's a galvanizing speaker, you know, whether you agree with him or not. He's, he's certainly, you know, he doesn't... Uh, you know, he doesn't lean back in his seat and just sort of casually walk you through this. He really, you can almost picture him on his tiptoes or sitting at the edge of his seat and really engaged on the subject. And that, that's what got my attention. And as I listened to the, the substance of what he said, it very much clicked into place for me. Everything that I 
believe uh, had an explanation that made so much more sense now because I realized, you know, what I had intuited to be wrong about using animals had some basis in theory that, that actually all lined up. And so I started slowly moving my way towards there. I, I embraced it wholeheartedly right away, but unlike veganism where I, you know, I went vegan between lunch and dinner and it, you know, there may have been the occasional thing I, I realized later that wasn't vegan and I immediately cut that out too. But with, with abolitionism, you know, I think that having spent so much of my life over three decades in a welfare mindset, you know, that even when I'd been convinced to become vegan, I hadn't really completely dropped the welfare mindset. But once that was challenged, the idea of seeing animals, uh, you know, their plight in terms of their treatment rather than their use, I, I had, you know, it took a little while for my brain to gr- fully grasp the uh, implications there, you know, the, the consequences of that view. And so, you know, it was an evolution for me, and I think that was documented somewhat on my blog at, at animalfriendlylife.com. And even after I came to Boston, you know, I, I, I founded with uh, my friend Kristen the BVA with abolitionism in mind. You know, we, I spent that summer building bostonvegan.org and, you know, trying to do a FAQ and our mission and all that. And looking back, it's just funny now, the first few months, at how, you know, much of the uh, old influences are still there. And fortunately, through, you know, uh, the interactions with some of, you know, the members of the organization who were also fellow abolitionists and, 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 you know, going through a reading group where we actually read, you know, this, uh, the works of uh, the various animal uh, ethics authors and coming to a stronger understanding of what abolition really means and what the, you know, if, you, if you're consistent with your views, what, it, what that requires of you as an activist. It really helped out a lot, you know, and, and I still feel like even to this day, you know, I'm still working on it. But I, I think that's the important thing is that we we uh, we try to be as consistent. I mean, isn't that what being vegan is all about, being consistent with our beliefs about animals? Yes. And I think that's really what abolitionism boils down to is, you know, if we say it's wrong to harm animals unnecessarily, well, then we, we need to be vegan because, you know, it's unnecessary to use them. It causes them harm to be property. And so let's stop it. Really, a pretty, pretty straightforward argument. It's the uh, core of the pamphlet that uh, we uh, produced. The BVA produced uh, its own pamphlet. You can find it at veganpamphlet.com. As I know, you know, Eric. I saw your or Derek, sir. I saw your uh, application earlier. Oh, you and, did. <laughs> uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's a pretty easy process, as you can attest. It's just a matter of making sure the pamphlet's being used um, in a way that uh, it was designed for to be used. We originally just designed it for our own local use uh, to be able to have when we're tabling it's to accompany a conversation you know and if people have questions about what they read we're there to to talk to them about it and have you know an informed discussion about animal rights and so we are providing those for free both the printing and the distribution is free to anyone who wants to use it in the same way as long as it's consistent with the abolitionist approach well some what are some of the uh, most consistent myths you see uh, that you have to debunk as a an abolitionist well there's there's this idea that, you know, the big thing is the focus on treatment, you know, I mean, that, uh, that treatment is really the problem. I think we've been so brainwashed by not just the status quo within, you know, what we call the animal, what is called the animal rights movement, and some people call it the animal protection movement, whatever it is, it's the dominant, uh, you know, animal movement. But it really is just, it's more of the same, you know, this, this idea that, you know, how we treat animals is the issue. That, that's just us chasing our tails, you know. We could be doing that forever, and as long as animals are being used, they'll be harmed. There's not going to be a possibility of 
of law that meaningfully protect animals from harm because their interests will always be less than the interests of their owners. You know, that's what it means to be property. So that's, that's one of the big, big myths that I think abolitionists in general are constantly, uh, you know, if you if it's use your word, to, to debunk them, uh, whether we're talking to fellow advocates or to people on the street who want to believe that they can still eat animals somehow. But what about free range or what about organic? You know, we have to, you know, debunk these types of myths that, uh, it's, you know, that it's both empirically and morally possible to humanely use another animal. Right. And I guess um, I was also curious as to whether there were, you know, myths about um, what an abolitionist is really seeking uh, to ah. do. Well, I mean, I think people are pretty clear that abolitionists seek the abolition of animal, you know, institutionalized animal exploitation. Uh, you know, uh, when you when you ask about, you know, myths people have about abolitionists, do you mean people within the uh, animal movement? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, pe- well, I just wonder, uh, like, for example, what kinds of uh, activities say, for right. example, you know, you're looking to like get the, legislation and things like that. Right. The all or nothing myth is the big one uh, when yeah. it comes to that sort of thing. So a lot of people have this belief that abolitionists are all or nothing. You know, we're going to go, we're going to get everybody to go vegan overnight and we're going to abolish animal use overnight and that's how it's going to happen and that's impossible, you know. I mean, people have been saying that for decades. Henry Spira mm-hmm. said the same thing, you know, um, and this is what has led to this sort of compromise approach where the movement has become uh, very much concerned with insider status, with becoming liked, with having a seat at the table to negotiate. But what they've done is they've negotiated away the animal rights view, and they've been co-opted into a welfare view. And so what, you know, we do obviously want an incremental approach. Everybody, including abolitionists, recognize that, you know, it's not going to be like this, and then suddenly tomorrow someone throws a switch and goes, of course, animal rights, let's go ahead and vote for those, you know. We have to change society. It's a movement, and that happens one person at a time. It happens as we have a dialogue, whether it's on radio stations like yours or it's on uh, someday maybe on Larry King or whoever you know is having the uh, talk show of the moment at, at that point. Uh, and, of course, grassroots on our own street corners. Each person that we talk to about abolitionism that understands the urgency of the situation and, and starts to actually realize that veganism is consistent with their beliefs about animals we're incrementally moving towards a more vegan world, a world in which we do actually have this possibility of, uh, you know, legislation passing that actually creates meaningful change for animals. But until that society is there, until the Congress people have that support from their constituency, I mean, that's never going to happen. So we have to work on the constituency ourselves. We have to, to bring about a social justice movement for animals that actually demands change for animals. Yeah, and I guess that's that's the thing is building it little by little through all these uh, various activities. Education is going right. to be the only thing. Yeah, I mean, my concern is that so many people are so so concerned about getting this quick win, this seemingly great victory for the animals, that they've sort of just given up on actually building a social, like a grassroots social movement that's become a corporate movement, and that's pretty disempowering to the individual activist. You know, like when the best thing you can do is write a check or send an email or you know buy a certain product. I mean, that doesn't that isn't going to change the world, you know. And so, what we have to do is get out there and actually change attitudes and to raise awareness of uh, the, the fact that animals are harmed by being property. And then, and as that education sort of spreads through our society, as people grow up, kids, you know, recognize that even having to articulate it that it's wrong to use animals. The more that happens, you know, we'll see subsequent generations. Maybe it'll be two or three generations from now, where 
this stuff that we're talking about, you know, is is not so extreme sounding anymore to the mainstream, you know. Yeah, sure, there'll be plenty of people that don't want it, you know, but I think the idea that the average person agrees that someone is extreme for believing that animals have rights will eventually fade as people realize that we actually have a legitimate point here, that we're not saying that animals are the same as humans, that they have similar interests that need to be respected. Yeah, we're not going to give cows driver's licenses or anything. Right. I mean, I saw that today on Opposing Views. It's just not. <laughs> really? You believe that people think that, you know, animals should have the right to vote? I mean, well, maybe bonobos. Yeah, maybe bonobos. They, they are, they're a loving uh, group. Okay. <laughs> So what's the biggest stumbling block or block you find in people that, in terms of helping getting them to really care about these issues? Well, I think that's a good question too. Let me see. <clears throat> getting them to care about these issues. Now we're talking about sort of the, uh, the the non-vegan populace, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think people do care about these issues. I think the hard part is getting them to care about the abolitionist view because, as long as I mean, this is what the uh, mainstream organizations have found, figured out, right? As long as we don't tread on their ability to use animals or their interest in using animals, then they can get a lot more of what they want to get done accomplished. So they focus on things that everybody agrees on. You know, I mean, you see this coming from the HSUSPR camp. It's like everybody agrees that, you know, chickens shouldn't be in tiny cages. And so that doesn't really challenge what people's beliefs are. And, of course, the abolitionist approach does. And I think that's why a lot of people do have this unease with talking to us is that they know their views are being challenged. They get very defensive sometimes. They don't want to hear what happens and fortunately not everybody's in that position all the time you know sometimes people are more open and teachable than others and there are people who would be open to it if they were just given the message instead of the message that you know we should be you know switching to cage-free eggs you know if somebody had given them the message about animal rights and veganism that might have been compelling to them as well so we i figure it's like anything you know i mean if you're a car salesman you're not going to sell your uh Toyota Matrix to every single person on the street, right? There's a sort of a demographic of potential Toyota Matrix buyers, right? <laughs> well, if we're selling animal rights in the sense that we're trying to educate people about it, then there's a, there's a narrow demographic of people out there that we know exist. I mean, we're, look at those of us that are already out there. I mean, we, we just have to find more of them and explain to them what's going on. And, and you see it happening all the time. More and more vegans continue to um, arise. And we uh, just have to keep that up. And eventually, again, as the culture shifts, we'll find more and more of those, and then we can pick them up too. But we shouldn't have to feel... This is one thing I think that a lot of advocates have as a myth, is that they feel like they have to change everybody they meet so that they can't change their mom and they can't change the next person that came up to the table. What am I doing wrong? You know, what, what can I do differently? And this is what leads to that grab bag approach to, to advocacy of like, well, maybe if I do the environmental thing on this person, that'll work. Or maybe if I do the health thing, or maybe if I do uh, suffering in cages, you know, that'll work. And and so they sell their own audience short because they're trying to pander to everybody that comes along instead of maintaining a consistent, internally logical view that really reflects their beliefs and also is consistent with the beliefs that everybody else has, and they just don't realize it. And those that are able to process that, that are ready for it, they'll be there. They'll get it. I mean, I had a guy come up to our table just a couple of weeks ago who was excited to see it. He wasn't vegan himself, but he had a friend in, in Hawaii who was, and he wanted to send her the picture, and me and you know, one of my uh, fellow uh, co-directors, you know, he came up a little closer after we asked him, why aren't you vegan? He actually got into a conversation with us, and we talked for about 20 minutes, and he went away really, really thinking about this stuff seriously. 
And part of that was the influence of having a vegan in his life already, and part of it was giving him a clear, consistent message that was not trying to, you know, pander to him or to cater to whatever, you know, we thought might sell him. And, boy, the guy was really, he just wanted some questions cleared up, you know, about protein and all the usual stuff, and it made a big difference for him. So I think that's, that's the incremental approach, you know. You see it expanding our circle of influence as our circle grows. Ripples. Circle of yeah. compassion. Yep. Absolutely. Well, and uh, your pamphlet um, is available by answering a questionnaire on your site. <laughs> Veganpamphlet.com. If you, if you can answer the questions correctly. Well, it's more about, not so much correct as making sure that, you know, obviously everybody's got different responses, but if somebody wants to use this pamphlet alongside Why Vegan, then that just doesn't make any sense. You know, if someone wants to use it alongside Try Vegetarian, then that doesn't make any sense. You know, we, we have an unequivocal vegan message, and it's confusing to tell people, well, if you don't want to go vegan, try this pamphlet instead. You know what I mean? Hmm. So these are the kinds of things we're trying to aim for, and if we find that people, uh, you know, are... are doing some confused advocacy that, that kind of murky, mur, uh, what's the word, uh, makes the water a little muddy, then um, that's not going to be the right use for our pamphlet. It's, we want to make sure our, our resources are being used most effectively. And certainly if people are kind of close on that one, you know, we'll have a dialogue with them via email or phone, and if it looks like we can work it out, then, then great. And if it doesn't, you know, if they don't like those types of positions, if they want to be able to hand out 14 different pieces of literature that have no relation to one another, then that's their prerogative we're not going to you know we're just not going to send them ours that's all uh, you know, it's, it's all something right. that you know we we have thousands of these things and we want to give them as many away as possible but we want to make sure they're being used well all right um well we're all out of time eric but thanks so much for coming on the show um it's thanks. been enlightening talking 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 to you and uh the, the website is bostonvegan.org animalfriendlylife.com and a few others we'll have in our show notes. Uh, and great, uh, we'll hopefully well, see you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Good yeah. talking to you. Yeah, Take care. great to talk. Bye. Uh, and I'd like to thank Meredith Medita for sitting in once more. Although, gosh, you seem a little quiet today, Meredith. Yeah, she got all quiet when Eric came on. I thought she was going to. She's going to talk smack with him, but yeah, <laughs> maybe next time. I don't talk smack. Yeah, the way you were posturing at the beginning of the show. Oh, I, really... I was not, no. All right, well, you're listening to <laughs> WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. This is Vegan Radio. You can check us out, veganradio.com. Up next is Scene Red. Stay tuned. And stay vegan or go vegan or get vegan. Please. <laughs> <laughs>